You're listening to the Bible teachings of Reality Church Stockton. For more info, please visit our website at realitystockton.com. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. Um, just, I just want to say I just love you guys. Um, like, what a year, right? <laughs> like, 2018, and uh, here we come to the end of 2018, and I... I just as one of your pastors, I just want to say I just love you guys, and I'm happy and excited to open up the book of Isaiah a little bit this morning with you. I think that, like I pray, that this sermon is probably a little bit more of a reminder uh, than anything, but I pray that we would really take that to heart, because I think a lot of Scripture is reminding, right? It's God repeating himself over and over again to his people because we are a people who forget a lot of times what he said. And so I hope this morning that we were reminded, and as we're reminded together, that we would rejoice together in all that he has done, uh, because he's a really great and amazing God. And we can't really rejoice too much. Uh, so let's rejoice well this morning together. Uh, so the book of Isaiah that our passage comes out, out from is really a book that is uh, sort of preoccupied with two primary themes. There's a theme of judgment that runs throughout the book of Isaiah, and there's a theme of redemption or hope that also runs throughout the book of Isaiah. And that is because Isaiah really prophesied in a time where Israel was not following after God, but after other idols. And so the judgment portions really serve as Isaiah warning the people of this impending judgment that was coming. At first, the impending Assyrian invasion that was going to come. And then in the second half of the book, where our passage comes from, Isaiah begins to warn them of Babylon coming to conquer them and to carry them off into exile. But the book of Isaiah also weaves this amazing story and poetry and prophecy of redemption, of this theme, and these are beautiful descriptions of the redemption of God's people. And I think something that you'll find about the God of the Bible is, right, is that he is a God who is always planning redemption. That's something that's amazing about our God. The book of Isaiah seems to be communicating to Israel that the judgment really paves the way for the redemption of Israel. And it would seem to communicate that judgment is not so much punishment as it is preparation for the beautiful, merciful grace that God was preparing for his people. And this is why so many of the illusions and descriptions 
of Israel's Messiah are found in the book of Isaiah. And we've quoted the book of Isaiah quite a few times in the Advent season because it talks a lot about this redemption, this final redemption that was going to come through the coming of the Messiah. These passages are sort of woven into the story and the poetry and the prophecy of the book of Isaiah. The coming of the one who will redeem Israel and establish it as a blessing to the nations, which was promised to, to Abraham. And so here in, in chapters 52, uh, chapter 52, verses 7 through 10, we come to one of these passages about the Messiah. A passage that talks about what is it going to be like when a redemption arrives in Israel? Like, what is it going to be like when the arm of the Lord is revealed, which is an allusion to the Messiah? What is it, will it be like when the Messiah comes to make all things right? Or as the Old Testament describes, the Messiah comes to bring righteousness. What's that going to be like? I think our passage helps us get into a sense of that. And so I think if you put yourself in the place of those in ancient Israel who would have read this passage, right, these exiles in Babylon, when they're reading these words and they're hearing that this good news is going to come to Jerusalem, which in their time, Jerusalem is laid to waste. It's, it's, an, it's a broken city. Two things need to happen for them, for this passage this morning to come true. They need to be, they need to return to their homeland. They need to come out of exile, and they need the Messiah to come. Now, whether those two things are one and the same, or whether they are two separate events, probably was up for debate for them, but those two things needed to happen. But we know from history, and from reading the scriptures, that those two things didn't happen simultaneously. But that Persia conquered Babylon, and Cyrus sent the people home. First, Ezra went back to rebuild the temple, and then, then Nehemiah went back to rebuild the wall, and then Israel reclaims its home, and many, many come back from exile. So there's this after-exile generation that reads this passage, and they can look back. They can look back and remember the time when they were in exile in Babylon and how God had moved on them and redeemed them out of Babylon and back into their homeland. But they still read this passage looking ahead, waiting for the Messiah to come. So they sort of stand in between two moments in their history, still waiting for the Messiah to come, but super thankful for what God had done already. And this morning, I think we find ourselves in a similar place. We as Christians, if you're a believer here this morning, we've come out of the exile of sin and death, and yet we're still waiting for the second coming of Jesus. We're still waiting for him to come again. The good news, right, has started to come over the mountains, but we're still waiting for it to fully come. But I think this passage is helpful to understand some of what we should be doing sort of in the in-between time as we're waiting his return. How we're supposed to be, and probably maybe even more importantly, what postures we're supposed to take up together as a community. So we're going to walk through these four verses in just four simple steps. The good news, uh, which we'll probably spend most of our time talking about because the good news is oh, really good. Uh, we're going to talk about the watchman. And we're going to talk about the waste places. We're going to talk about the world. The world. So first, the good news. So let's reread verse 7. Maybe put yourself in that mindset of what would it be like to hear the good news for the first time? 
How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. That's a beautiful verse. The redemption that God brings is often described in the scriptures as news. As news. We talk about this, right? The gospel. The gospel is the good news. It's news. It is this way because it is God's news. It's God's redemption that he is working. The key factor, the key party, the key actor in this good news is God. Is God. I think a key to understanding sort of the context of the scriptures, though it may be different than what our context that we stand in now, is that the key to news is that it is what it is. Now, we stand in a time where news sometimes doesn't seem to be what it is. We stand in a time where we question the news, or we don't, we're a little bit skeptical of what the news could be telling us. We're cynical about what the news may be saying. But the news that the scripture brings is good news. And it can be trusted as news, as the reporting of something that has happened, of truth. We can't change the news, but the news can change us. I think this is the message of the good news, God's good news, is that we don't change his news. He's bigger than that. But his news can change us. And for many of us, It already has changed us and is changing us. And we should celebrate that this morning. But to illustrate a little bit of how this works in the scriptures, there's this story in 2 Kings chapter 6 and 7 when the nation of Syria came to besiege Samaria, which was the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And the situation during this siege was super, super bleak. I mean, the people were selling donkey heads to eat and at exorbitant prices, because there was just nothing left in the city. The scriptures tell us that people were beginning to resort to cannibalism, because there was just nothing left to eat. And at this time, God comes to visit his people. In the night, he makes the Syrian army hear these sounds of hooves and of chariots, and they think that Israel has sent messengers to the surrounding nations, like the Hittites and the Egyptians, to come and to fight them for them. And they get so scared that the Syrians just leave. They leave all of their stuff. They leave all of their camp, leave everything where it was at, and they just run. They run. And no one in the city, no one in Samaria, no one in the city where everyone's dying even knows that it's happening. The story goes that there are four lepers outside the city where they would be found because they're not allowed inside the city. And it's pretty bleak for them. You can imagine how bleak it is in the city, how bleak it is outside the city. And so they make this calculation amongst themselves. They go, well, they're not going to let us in the city. We're going to die out here. So maybe we should just go and ask the Syrians to have mercy on us. Maybe they'll give us some food. At worst, they'll kill us, right? Like, that's already going to happen. So they venture into the camp of the Syrians, and they find it deserted. And they begin to plunder all of its goods. So they start taking all this stuff. I'm sure there's probably food that's just still hot because they ran so quickly. And they start stuffing their faces with what is there. 
and they don't say anything, if they don't say anything to the city, the people in the city will continue to die. Right? This, is a, this is a crazy situation where minute by minute, people are dying in the city. Or you think of the children that are just on the brink of death. Or the people in the streets of, Jeru- of Samaria who are on the brink of death. Minute by minute, the death toll is rising in Samaria. So every minute that these lepers don't say something means doom for someone inside the city. Well, they come to their senses and they say this in 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 9. We are not doing right. This day is a day of good news. If we are silent and wait until the morning light, punishment will overtake us. Now, therefore, come. Let us go and tell the king's household. The people of Samaria didn't make the Syrians flee. They didn't come up with an amazing plan. God did. The lepers didn't provide relief to the city. God did. What the lepers bring to the city is just news. It's good news. But no one in the story affected the news or created the news, but simply benefited from the good news brought to the people because of God, because God is good. And he moved on behalf of his people. And this is the context of the good news of the scriptures. When God brings, or when God sends good news, it doesn't require you, it doesn't require us to earn it. It doesn't require us to make it happen or to manufacture it. Its requirement is to receive it as finished, as finished. Because the, move, the moment we try to finish God's good news, it becomes really awkward and ultimately it becomes offensive. How awkward is it to try to put the finishing touches on something someone else has already completed? How offensive is it to take credit for something someone else has already accomplished? The good news that comes over the mountains, the good news that comes to us is finished. And it's finished by God himself. Good news is often depicted in the scriptures as coming from the outside in. In our passage, it seems that this good news is coming to Jerusalem from over the mountains, as it says, from the outside into the city. Or we read passages like Psalm 121. I lift up my eyes to the hills. Right? I lift up my eyes out there. Because where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. The lepers in the story in 2 Kings, they brought the good news from outside of Samaria into, into Samaria. Jesus was born in little Bethlehem that no one really cared about. Jesus came from Nazareth, which was even worse than Bethlehem. Could anything good come from Nazareth? Jesus was crucified outside the city. Jesus comes from outside the upper room into the upper room to reveal himself to his disciples after his resurrection. So often we see the good news coming from outside in. And it comes from outside because it's not of us. It's of God. I think so often we mistake that, right? We, our world tells us that the good news comes from inside of us. You just have to dig deep enough and find it. But the good news of the scriptures doesn't come from inside of us. It comes inside of us to change us because it comes from outside. It comes from God. And the fact that God's good news is finished by another becomes the source 
of joy for us. The fact that it's finished by a benevolent God is a source of joy. Right? Listen to verse 7. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace, who brings good news of happiness, who publishes salvation, who says to Zion, your God reigns. You know, the Bible has a lot of wisdom, but I bet you didn't, you didn't know that it told you if you want your feet to be beautiful to someone, you bring them good news. You bring them good news. God's good news is not supposed to bum you out. It's supposed to bring you joy and happiness. I think primarily it's because it doesn't require anything from you. And that can be our biggest source of joy. Because how often do we exhaust ourselves trying to earn everything in our lives? What is the good news? What is this good news? We read a passage that really starts this conversation in the New Testament last week. Let me read it again to us in Luke 2. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. God's good news isn't just a story. It's not just a theory. It's not just something to live by. It's embodied in a person, in the person of Jesus Christ, in a Savior, in a Messiah who's come to save the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians describes it this way to us and very succinctly. 1 Corinthians 15, chapter 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, lest you believed in vain. I'll just stop there for a second. Paul is saying to the Corinthian church, I'm just going to remind you of the good news. I'm just going to remind you of the gospel, of the gospel that you stand in, that you are saved in, that is saving you now. Let this description from, as I read it, remind you this morning of the gospel of Jesus Christ that you stand in, that, is, that you are being saved by. That's what it says. For I deliver to you as of first importance. This is of first importance. This isn't just like the ABCs, guys. This is, this is it. What I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. That is the good news. If God's good news often comes from the outside in, it also brings those that are outside in. The gospel, as Paul describes it, saves it sets captives free. It brings exiles home. This is why it is good news. It is the good news that Jesus has come to save us, that he has done so through his life, death, burial, and resurrection. And this news changes us. 
Our mission statement as a church is to make disciples of all people, right? That's the end of our mission statement. We want to be a church that does this. I think it comes primarily not just from hearing words of good news that come from the mountains, but to speak these words to one another. Discipling isn't primarily telling each other what to do, but us telling each other what has been done for us. And then becoming the messengers that take that news to our city, to our neighborhood, our workplaces, our schools, because this amazing good news is about Jesus. But to be effective in discipling, it has to impact us. We have to care about it. In a story in 2 Kings and in the other stories of good news in the Bible, good news comes to those who are oppressed, to those who are in exile, and to those that are in need. This is the context of the good news. This is why Jesus says in chapter 9 of, of the book of Matthew, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I, come, for I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. This is why we should rejoice in the good news. Because we were once lost, but now we're found. We were once blind, but now we see. We were once enemies, but God now calls us friend. We were once dead, but God has made us alive. We should all want to be reminded and reminded and reminded of that daily. And we should all be reminding and reminding and reminding each other of that daily. We should all want that to be impacting our lives on a daily basis. We should all stand up, right, and sing our hearts out because God's good news has come to this room, has come to your ears and to your hearts. Like, this has happened. Like, this is real. And it's come in the person of Jesus. Like, as I was, like, preparing this sermon and reading the, these verses over and over again, like, something that I thought of, and I don't think that Pastor Christian would be, like, super upset with me saying this, is that I don't think that Christian, nor certainly myself, stand up here as, like, the greatest orators of the world. Uh, <laughs> but what, he's quite surprised by that. Um, but what we have served and tried to serve you is to remind you of this good news. To stand up here and say, you know what, we're, we're gonna just going to preach Jesus and the gospel. And we want to be, that's what we want to be about as a church. But that just doesn't start and stop here, right? It's all of us telling each other this story. It's us delivering this good news to each other. It's, it, it's this being on our lips. It's us being so excited of what Jesus has done in our lives and what we're reading in the scriptures and how that's impacting us and us sharing that with each other that changes us, that makes us into a different kind of community. And that's possible and it's happening here. And I think that's something that we should really rejoice in and be thankful for. So that is a little bit 
of what is the good news. But then we have these next three points, the watchmen, the waste places, and the world. And I think the watchman is really a little bit of what it looks like for us to live this kind of gospel-infused life. This is what it says in verse 8. The voice of your watchmen, they lift up their voice. Together they sing for joy, for eye to eye they see the return of the Lord to Zion. There is a theme that runs throughout the scriptures of the watchmen, or sometimes it's talked about in the, in the New Testament as being sober-minded or being awake or having our eyes open or not falling asleep. There's this idea that we're supposed to have this very active life where not, it's not as if a lot of things are happening, but that we're just awake and waiting for them to happen. Right? This is sort of a theme in Scripture because good news comes from without, right? We said that, not from within. So it requires us that we keep watch, that we wait, and that we live these lives of expectation. Because we never know, right, when it's going to happen. Now, these qualities or these disciplines of our souls can be difficult. It can be difficult to be watchmen. Because a lot of times we don't really like to keep watch. We don't really like to wait on things. We don't really like to live in expectation. But I think it becomes easier when we live keeping watch and waiting and expecting from God. We're not just waiting for one another. We're not just waiting for some news to come. But when, these, when this watchman mentality takes over us because we're waiting for God, for him to move, for him to speak, it makes those quiet moments and maybe what would be would describe as boring, meaningful, because he's even working in those times. It's one thing to do these things, right, for the next like iPhone or uh, the next video game or the next Marvel movie or something. Like I do teach the youth, so these are the things that come to mind when I think of this. Um, you have to be kind of like a particular person, right, to wait for those types of things, to wait in those lines and to read those blogs and to live that life. Um, but when the God of the universe speaks and is speaking, it kind of changes the ball game for us, doesn't it? Or it should. The opportunity to see God move, to hear his voice, and become an impacted person by his presence really makes all of the expectation and the waiting and the watching really worth it, really worth it. But what are we watching for exactly? As I mentioned before, as, as you read this as we read this passage, it's been read by others in the past, right? So those that were waiting in exile in Babylon, they were waiting and watching for themselves to return and for the Messiah to come. So those in the generations after Ezra and Nehemiah, they were looking back, but then also waiting for the Messiah to come. But we sort of stand at this interesting point, right, in the story of the Bible. We stand waiting already having seen the Messiah come, but waiting for his second coming. We're waiting for his return. We stand as watchmen for the second coming of Jesus. But I think we too still stand as watchmen looking back to the first coming of Jesus, which is kind of what we've been practicing the past 
four weeks together in Advent. Not in the same sense, right? He's not going to come again in that form, but to be reminded of his first coming. As Jesus' first coming really prepares us for his second coming. And I think to help illustrate this, I just want to tell you a little bit like what I mean, and I'm going to use a little illustration. I make it a practice every year to read uh, the little Charles Dickens novella, A Christmas Carol. Every year. I've been doing it for like six or seven years. I think it really came from, like, I always watched A Muppet's Christmas Carol, which was, which still is like my second favorite um, Christmas movie behind this It's a Wonderful Life, which is the best, in this case you're curious. Um, but I think I felt guilty, like, having an English degree and never having actually read, like, Christmas Carol. So I started reading it every year. And um, I think the story of Ebenezer Scrooge is just so compelling because he is, like, he is just the worst. Like, he is the worst, right? And we all recognize that. At the beginning of the story, he's the worst. Like, no one wants to be his friend. Like, and he doesn't really want to be anyone else's friend. So I guess it sort of works out okay. But he seems, at the beginning of the story, just so beyond hope. Right? No one hopes for Ebenezer Scrooge. I mean, maybe a little bit like his nephew Fred, but even him, he doesn't really have this deep hope for Ebenezer. He's just sort of visiting him out of duty, right? Probably for his own conscience' sake. But then we watch, right, as Scrooge visits his past. And then it comes sort of into a better realization of his present and what is happening in the world around him. And then he sees this vision of his potential future. And through this process, through reading this novella or watching the movie, he is changed. He's changed. This man who no one would think capable of change is being redeemed before our very eyes as we read this story or we watch this movie. Scrooge is such like a self-oppressed person. He is such a self-exiled person in the story. And I think that for those of us who enjoy this story, we probably see a little bit of ourselves in Ebenezer Scrooge. Because sometimes we can be a little self-oppressed and self-exiling. But Scrooge says something as he's pleading with the ghosts of Christmas future that I think will help inform our Christian reality. He says this, or Charles Dickens says this through him. I will honor Christmas in my heart and try to keep it all the year. I will live in the past, present, and the future. The spirits of all three shall strive within me. His experience has, reform, has, has informed his redemption life to live in light of these three, three realities of time, the past, the present, and the future. He, does, he desires to live in the, in the present, informed by the past and for the future. For us, it is the same. We live in the present, hopefully, which is informed by the past. And we live for a future, a very specific future. We live in the present, which is informed by the past advent of Jesus Christ with the future of eternity with Christ always as our goal. This is why Scrooge says he has a desire to honor Christmas in his heart and to try to keep it all the year. Because there's something about the Christmas story 
that changes us and has a, an ability to change us. So we should say this too. Because when we take that down deep, when we take the Christmas story down deep, we realize that God's good news starts with Christmas. Right? Jesus says in John 3.16, right? one of the most famous verses, or if not the most famous verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. God's good news starts with the giving of his son, which we celebrate at Christmas, right? which is why Advent is the beginning of the church calendar. When we live like this is the reality. When we live like God gave the son as a reality in our lives, it is as if it's Christmas, like all year round. It's been said that Christmas is the time of year when we act the way we wish we acted all year round, right? We're a little more kind, we're a little more giving, and we're a little more patient. If we could live in the present in light of all that Christ has done for us in the past, while being mindful that all that we have is rubbish compared to eternity with Jesus when he returns, man, we would really be cooking. We would have something going on, right? We would embody a transformational community because we're grateful for all that we have because it's been given to us by God in Christ through the Spirit. And all of that is not eternal in our lives. We'd be ready just to lay it down because we know that it is only temporary because eternity waits for us. The Christian should be watching on the wall of his heart for the truth of the gospel and ways to deliver that gospel to those around him or her with eternity in mind. Living in the past and the present and the future. Living as if Jesus has come. And it takes watching and fighting for that rear view mindset while we simultaneously have this front-facing mindset of eternity where those two things come together in the Christian life and we live these lives of radical transformation where we say none of this matters except for eternity and all that matters in my life is all that Christ has done in me because of all of his grace and mercy that he's provided for me through the cross. And this is going to change us, right? And this is where we stand as Christians, as watchmen on the wall of our hearts, watching for God to move, seeing how he has moved, and waiting for him to come again. And the final two verses describe where the good news goes and where we should, in turn, take it. So first, the waste places. Isaiah 52, verse 9, says this. Break forth together into singing, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The waste places. I, I love, really love this quote from Spurgeon about, about this theme. He says this. If you were to take out of the scriptures all the stories that have to do with the poor, afflicted men and women, what a very small book the Bible would become. Especially if together with the stories, you removed all the psalms of the sorrowful, all the promises for the distressed, 
and all the passages which belong to the children of grief. The book, indeed, for the most part, is made up of the annals of the poor and the despised. I think this idea is amazing because it's true, right? When you read it, it's like there's always someone in distress in the scriptures. This would be a very small book. And I think this idea a lot of times is lost when we think of the church in America. I don't think that we really think of the distressed or the poor or the despised in, when we think of the church here. And all throughout scriptures, all throughout the scriptures, it's the marginalized that are highlighted. When I read this passage uh, in, in, in chapter 52 of Isaiah, the thought that kept coming to mind when I got to this verse was that the gospel gets into all of the nooks and the crannies of this world. That's what I thought of. That was the image that came to my mind. It's given in this sort of poetic prophecy. Right? When the good news comes, right, over the mountains, and, and the watchmen hear the good news, and they go tell the king, Right, and the king tells the, his folks, and they tell their folks. I think that we all know how the world works and how our social systems work. There's a point at which that news like, stops trickling down. It doesn't really make it like, to the waste places. Right? Those people are left sort of on their own. But God's good news isn't this way. He puts the waste places first. He's concerned about the nooks and the crannies of our city. He's concerned about the nooks and the crannies of this rim. And those that are here that feel like that. He's concerned about you. Perhaps you would describe yourself, maybe not like as a nook or a cranny, um, but as oppressed. Maybe you feel exiled. Maybe you feel in need this morning. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like God's good news is not for you. The scriptures really tell a different story. And they extend a very different hand to you this morning. Not only are you valued, and not only do you have dignity in the gospel of Jesus Christ, but it comes to you first. Priority is given to those that find themselves at the bottom. Special attention is given to those who are on the outside, to bring them inside. This is a value of the kingdom of God. And it should be a value of his people. It should be a value of ours. But the waste places that the people who are forgotten in this city are people that we care about and a place where we take the gospel. And there are probably nooks and crannies and quote-unquote, waste places in this rim. And as brothers and sisters, we should extend a hand of grace. Let's extend a hand of love to those in this room who, who feel that way and who need that kind of care because God has extended his hand of good news to us. Finally, the, the world. In verse 10, it says this, the Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. The scale of God's good news is enormous. 
It's all the nations. It's the ends of the earth. Jesus said in Matthew 24, and this gospel, this good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. This infectious joy and happiness that's based in God's good news of salvation through Jesus Christ is not just for one people group, not just for one nation, not just for one education background, not for one economic status. It's for the world. For God so loved the world. That's big. This means the scale of our outreach and the scale of our heralding of this good news has no end. Has no end. There isn't a corner of this world that should be untouched by God's good news. But who's going to take it there? Who's going to take it here? Who's going to share God's good news? That's us. That's us. How can we contain it? How can we keep it a secret? Our physical bodies shouldn't be able to contain this type of joy that has been placed in here because of being redeemed from sin and death. Like, that's crazy. Our emotional states, like mine is right now, should be changed when we remember all that has been done for us and that is waiting for us in eternity. Like, whoa. Our spirits, they were dead. But now they're alive through the Spirit in Christ to speak good news to the nations. That capability, that possibility is present in this room. Not because we're super great, but because God is super, super great. And so as we stand at the close of 2018, we look into 2019 together as a community, I would like to encourage us to be a community that chooses joy, that chooses to turn to one another, to remind each other of the good news of Jesus Christ. Would we just bore one another with the good news? It won't get boring, trust me. But we almost have that mentality that we're going to say it over and over and over again next year that, it, that maybe it will become boring, but I'm sure it will not. Can we have that attitude within us? Because it will not get boring. We will be singing these praises forever and ever and ever. It will not end. And as we do that with one another and for one another, as we fight for each other, we fight for each other's joy in the gospel, but our joy spill over to rejoice in the Lord always. And together, we will say rejoice together. And I want to encourage us to be a community that lives in the past, the present, and the future. A community that remembers all that Christ has done and applies it in the present for the hope of the future eternity with him. And I would encourage us to not let those in the nooks and the crannies of our lives go without hearing God's good news. 
I would encourage us to pray for the nations to be reached with the gospel. And maybe even for some of us to go to the nations. And I want to encourage those among us this morning and who will be among us this next year who are standing on the outside. I would encourage you to come, to come inside, to come into this good news, to be welcomed into the joy of the Lord with us. For there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved except for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I encourage us in these things, both as we look back in 2018, as we look forward to 2019. You pray with me. Father,